are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. This episode features myself, Daniel, and Jason as we chat with writer, director, and the voice of Solid Snake. Mr. David Hayter. We're going to chat about Metal Gear, of course, Watchmen, Alan Moore, comics, and a whole bunch of other shit. So without further ado, here you go. Colonel, this is Solid Snake. I've infiltrated the base. No sign of the target. Though now, I'm surrounded by all sorts of monsters, madness, and magic. Also, the clap of my dummy thick ass cheeks has again alerted the guards to my location. Please advise. Colonel? Colonel! Colonel! Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Well, David, we don't do anything fancy. We're already doing the episode right now. Fantastic. Take us back in time. You're a little kid. What gets you going? Are you building forts? You're reading comics? What's the scoop? Yeah, I uh, was an only child and my parents uh, moved all the time. My dad worked for a big company and we got transferred around all my life. So I was always the new kid in school. And so I basically read comics to keep myself amused. I did. I mean, I read everything, but the comic books really obviously shaped my life and were a huge part of what what became my career. At what age would you say that you started maybe trying acting? Were you in the theater as a kid or anything like that? I was nine years old and my mother, because we moved around all the time, my mother would look up local community theater shows and she'd audition and do these shows. And that was her way of getting to know the community and getting friends and, and whatnot. We were living in El Toro, California. She saw an ad for auditions for a kid's production of Pinocchio, Costa Mesa. And so we drove down, it was like 45 minutes, drove down, I auditioned, got a part, did the show. And then opening night, my mother has a picture of this. I was nine. This beautiful 10-year-old girl came up to me and asked me for my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> and I started signing the autograph and I was like, you know, this is pretty good. So <laughs> that was that was really the moment that changed my life. Prior to that, I had wanted to be a lawyer. And then I realized I'm nine. I have like 30 more years of school to go or I could just become an actor and pretend I'm a lawyer. I think you made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> What's damn, damn straight paperwork. <laughs> what got you started obviously like the writing of the screenplays and stuff like what was that pivotal gig now you say you know signing an autograph from pinocchio but like what was that pivotal moment that you actually knew it's like yeah i'm gonna do this like what was your that first gig that landed you in the scene that's a crazy long story but basically i started writing when i was 12 and kind of fell in love with that i wrote like i guess you could call it indiana jones fan fiction though it, it, it wasn't called that at the time at the time it was called my excuse for not doing my homework and then i the gig i got was uh 
I was hired to answer the phones on the movie X-Men and the director, nobody on the film knew much about the X-Men, but I did because of my experience with comic books and the director started having me do rewrites on the script. And so that was my first writing job. And I got, I ended up getting sole credit on the screenplay after 13 months worth of work. So I was, uh, my friend, Chris McCory, who wrote the usual suspects, he called me up when the movie opened and he said, do you realize you are the most successful first time screenwriter in film history? <laughs> I guess so. so. So that was it. That was my, that was my big break. When you wrote for the X-Men, like, so you knew about the story of the X-Men and you were just answering phones mm -hmm. and somebody said, just here, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You write this thing. I mean, <laughs> not, not really. It was, I was, the director asked me to drive him. He was like, look, you're a filmmaker. My assistant doesn't care. Do you want to drive me to some of the creature effects houses? Cause they're going to be doing pitches for beast. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. So I, I was just driving him and he was complaining about the script and couldn't figure out how to say the word X-Men in the movie without it sounding stupid. And I said, well, why don't you have a scene with Wolverine and he's walking across the mansion and grounds and he runs into Cyclops on the basketball court and they have a little pickup basketball game and they're tossing the ball back and forth. You should join us. Wolverine's like, go to hell. And then finally he's like, you know, why don't you and Xavier and all your little X-Men go to hell? And I was like, then that way you get, you know, you get your hero to say it, but he's kind of making fun of it. And that takes the sting off of it. Brian was like, yeah, go write that for me. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought he was kidding, but I, but then I started writing scenes and 13 months later, movie was done and I'd re rewritten almost the whole thing. Zooming in on that screenwriting for a second, what does your process look like? Do you, are you an outliner? Oh yeah, very much. Yeah. So I typically, so the process is I start with like three or four page outline or a pitch, depending on whether it's been picked up or not. I uh, give it to the producers. They give me their thoughts. We flesh it out, go back and forth until it's about 12 or 15 pages. By the time I start a screenplay, I've probably got 20 pages of story. So mm. I essentially know all the scenes and all the story turns and everything. And I really mostly just have to add in dialogue and action specifics and stuff like that but yeah i do a lot of planning before i before i start and then then it usually takes another six to eight drafts before i feel like the movie is watchable all right you did x-men how did the scorpion king come into play i mean was it the same thing like the x-men you were just answering phones it's like <laughs> scorpion no. king what do you want and then the director's like want? i don't know what this is right, right. <clears throat> no i i <laughs> what after X-Men opened to $54 million, I no longer had to answer the phone. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no, I was, I was a wealthy screenwriter at that point. No, I was, well, I was working, I was working on the first Hulk movie and the Chronicles of Riddick at Universal and Mary Parent, who was a major executive at the time at Universal. I mean, she's a major producer executive now. I think she's the president of MGM, but at the time she was working at Universal and she said, Hey, David, we're shooting this movie called The Scorpion King in three weeks. Can I send you the script and you give me your thoughts? And I was like, yeah. So she sent me the script and I was like, well, you know, could be better. So I sent her two pages of notes saying, here's all the things I would do. I, I think you should change this, change this. Tonally, this doesn't really work. And she said, great. And they hired me to come in for a month to work on that movie and paid me a big dump truck full of money. <laughs> <laughs> it was a cool, almost like an offshoot. Kind of like when you get, you know, George Jefferson all of a sudden gets his own show mm -hmm. after, you know, you're just sharing a scene with Ar Archie Bunker. And then all of a sudden George Jefferson has his own show. Moving on see, right. right. You see the Scorpion King because the mummy was cool. Mm -hmm. But for what was kind of sort of, you know, just a throwaway character, uh, not really a throwaway character, you know, him being the foil of that film, you know, picking up that story and then just running with it like a complete offshoot. 
from another direction. It was really cool. I remember the fact that you got The Rock and stuff. That was just that was a really big deal when it came out. Yeah, it was The Rock's first starring role in a movie, and I got to work with him. I got you know I sat next to him at the table read and got to go out to the set and I made up action sequences with him out in the desert, which was really really cool. And you know he was just such a a nice guy. I think he was a little nervous about carrying his own movie the first time and obviously it went pretty well i'll see yeah it was just a blast that job was a blast and but it was, it was but it's funny because in the mummy returns or whatever it was he's a scorpion king in that he's half a scorpion he's trying to eat everybody i had to go back and write the prequel and say you know oh he's going to become king here and it's all going to be great but there's like a little line at the end <laughs> and, you know so what does the future look like and he's and the the sorceress is like well you know could be better um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I was like, "What? We already know his fate." <laughs> anyway, but everybody saw The Rock, and then nobody cared. It was it all worked out pretty great. Like I said, it's kind of unique in that, yeah, he was a bad guy, but you gave him like this origin story that was actually pretty darn cool. Actually, yeah, no, cool. thank you, thank you. I, I mean, it was me and a lot of people. I, it was, you know, there were, I think, three other screenwriters three or four other screenwriters credited i just came in and did the final polish mm -hmm. on it i mean i did a lot of work but it was definitely a group group effort david according to the all-knowing imdb mm -hmm. your first credit is lupin the third now how did that happen well that's only my first credit because the movie was made in 1979 before i started act i was doing i was in a movie called guyver dark hero back yeah. in 93 uh, i think you could see the poster there and there it is and they were mixing the sound at this studio in Sun Valley. So I would go there to do to, to loop lines and to, you know, sort of fix up my performance on Guyver. And they were doing anime dubs. And it was like very early days of like English anime dubs. And there was this guy, Kevin Seymour, and he was just dedicated to translating as many anime into English as he possibly could. God so most him. of the most of the early, yeah, he's a saint of anime, you know, most of the early anime that you've seen and loved, you know, like Gundam and uh, I don't know, Yu Yu Hakusho, all, all sorts of crazy stuff was done by Kevin Seymour and and Kevin Seymour under many, many different names. He had like five different names he'd direct under and, but he did it all and he discovered. And so he asked me if I would, he was like, do you want to do anime dubs for $50 an hour? And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did that and I did a bunch of them. It was me and Steve Blum and Brian Cranston. And like a lot of us, before we got our big break, we were working at animes and doing these dubs for 50 bucks an hour. And then we all sort of went on and did pretty well. And then one day Kevin asked me, he said, I've got a starring role for you in this movie, Castle of Calios. I was like, great. And so, you know, it was this thief and he was just really cool and funny and and, and but we were doing the movie and I was watching it while we were dubbing it. And I was like, these visuals are amazing. Like who directed this? <laughs> and I, I didn't I actually didn't find out for a few years that it was Hayao Miyazaki's his directorial debut. And um, yeah, so I just, you know, I just thought it was a, a super cool movie. And, and I did it. And then a few years later, I figured out who Hayao Miyazaki was. And I was pretty honored by having played that small role in his history. Now, did you have trouble dubbing at first? We've spoken to a lot of people who say that, you know, when they first try anime dubbing, it's a sort of almost a musical skill and that's something that they had to adjust. Oh, definitely. To. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's very accurate. It's, I had been living in Japan. I went to high school in Japan and I spoke, you know, decent Japanese. So I could actually you know, they would play the lines for me in Japanese. So I'd really get a sense of what, what was being said if the translation wasn't great. And then, and the other thing is, is that Japanese words are so much longer and more complex than the, than English, so many more syllables. So you have to match the lip flaps of the character and you have to make it sound 
like English, which is why anime sounds so weird. It's like, that's why you and I are going down to the store. Okay. You know, like, it's like <laughs> everything's sort of jammed in and, and you're adding extra syllables to try to match up with the Japanese lip flap. But I learned it pretty quick and, and uh, I loved it. It was, it was, yeah, it's a really cool skill. It's like, you know, lip syncing to a, to an extremely rapid and weird cartoon. Is that what opened the door for you to get into the video game voiceovers? Yeah, I started doing the anime and then I started, uh, you know, it all came to me from different sides. I, I guess on on major dad playing a russian character and they had the russian accent they, they speak like this and i got hired <laughs> to play a russian on captain planet so i started doing like animation through that and i started once i started doing animation i started getting jobs doing voiceover for for video games but i think getting cast as snake was because I was the star of Giver. I think Hideo Kojima was a fan of that movie because the, the first thing that happened once I got hired was he sent me a poster to sign for him. These movies are cool as shit. I mean, it's no, like thank you, you. you and Mark Hamill own, had the distinction of being Giver. Just that's it. So yeah, those movies are well, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm quite thrilled to be a part of that franchise. It actually makes sense that Kojima would be a fan. Of, now that you just mentioned it, it's like, yeah, okay, that, that really does make sense. I just... Yeah, because I, I was like, why me in particular? And and, uh, <laughs> and then that, I, I figured that's what it was. What was the first video game casting? When I was in Japan, when I was 16 years old, so 1985, I went to this international school and this Japanese video game company came to the school and they wanted four guys who spoke English to do voices for video games. And I didn't, I, I never found out what the video games were, but we did little things. We were soldiers, we were pilots, we were this, we were that. So basically those were the very first video games, arcade games that had voices in them. Dang. <clears throat> so I've been doing it since video games have had voices. And then when I was in LA before Snake, I did like, I was a pilot in Mech Warrior 2. Oh, I can't remember all the games that I did. I, I did all kinds of little, little roles in in video games when you finally get to snake initially how do you settle on the voice did you have a lot of direction did you play around with it a lot i auditioned with this voice with my voice which you know i was even younger then so i sort of sounded like this and you know i was like i sounded it kind of had a had the voice of a cocky fighter pilot you know like that was what i was and then then i got cast and then I got sent in the script and I was like, oh, this guy is retired and they're all calling him a legend. And he clearly doesn't want to come back. He's not peppy like I am. You know, he's a little sullen and he's a little resentful that he has to come back to the battlefield. And so I just put more age on it. I put more weight on it, put more exhaustion on it. And then that was the voice that I came up with. And I was doing it halfway through the first day of recording. The director, Chris Zimmerman, said to me, you know, can I play you the voice you auditioned with? And it was like, come on, Otacon, we got to go after Metal Gear. You know? <laughs> oh, do you want, I mean, should we re-record it? Like, and she's like, no, I think this is working. And I was like, yeah, I think so too. And, and I did. I felt, I felt like I'd sort of hit on this guy that, that, I mean, I didn't hit on a guy, which is fine, but, um, <laughs> but I had, I had landed on this character and I felt like people were, uh, that's, that's my private life, you know? <laughs> I felt like people would respond well to it. And, and it seems like 23 years later that it's been proven true. I, yeah, I was, I'm proof, living proof of that. I just I was telling him, I just ran the first four over the holiday break. Oh, awesome. During awesome. Thanksgiving. Did you have to have to re-record like all of the dialogue for the Twin Snakes? Like, did they call you back in the studio for the GameCube remake? And you had to redo all of that dialogue all over again? Yeah, and I asked them, I was like, why are we, why don't you just use the original recording? And uh, it was because we had recorded Metal Gear 1 in, or Metal Gear Solid anyway, in uh, this weird little 
house in Hollywood that was not a studio. It wasn't soundproofed or anything. It was just somebody's living room, but it had a big deck and a, you know, a big recording deck and, and all that and mics. And so when they put it on this, the GameCube, the sound card was better than the original PlayStation. And you could hear traffic going by in the background. You could hear motorcycles <laughs> pulling up on Orange Street and revving their engines. And, and so they were like, you know, we have to record everything again. And, and we did. Whenever it, whenever you were doing Metal Gear, just like Metal Gear Solid, were you, if you were familiar with the previous games or whatnot, I mean, did you have any idea that the story would just have the staying power that it has now? I mean, on paper, you're a comic book guy, so yeah. you would have insight because, I mean, when I look at it, you know, we got the 15 minutes in the future, Milsim, we've got giant mechs, we've got, you know, stealth action, the tactical gameplay kind of thing. You got right. the drama, you got the gore, you got freaking robot ninjas. I mean, if we find some way to put in a barbarian and some of them half-naked chicks with savage weapons, we've got right. like the greatest story ever told. I mean, <laughs> did you have any idea that it would have the staying power at the time? Well, yeah. I mean, I knew, I had seen the artwork, the Yoji Shinkawa artwork, and they, and, uh, they showed us some cutscenes from the game, like uh, when Snake brings down the Hind D helicopter. Mm -hmm. They showed us that and the whole place falling apart. And it was so far beyond what video games yeah. had ever done to that point. It was so cinematic and massive that I knew that it would be, well, I knew that Sony was going for something big with it you know or that konami was going for something big with it and i thought you know given that i was acting in the scenes that you know this was really going to be compelling for people and they're going to dig it i did not conceive of doing nine more games and then <laughs> talking about it to south carolinians 23 years later <laughs> uh, i'm glad i'm glad it went that way but uh, you know i figured it would be a video game i figured it'd be big for a year or two and then it would disappear and you go on to the next but it became a behemoth as you know as a screenwriter, were there was there any point at which you were approached to help adapt the series at all by Hollywood, or was have they never approached you at all? No, they did once. So the producer of the Metal Gear movie was and still is, I believe, Avi Arad. And at the time, he Ooh. owned Marvel. And so I knew Avi very well because we had done, I'd worked on X-Men, X-Men 2, Iron Man, The Hulk and Black Widow with Marvel. So I knew them very well. And then when the movie was going to possibly be made at Sony, president of Sony at the time was Mike DeLuca. And so Avi asked me if I would put together a pitch and if he and I could go in and pitch Mike the story. So I did. So I wrote out my adaptation of Metal Gear and went in and pitched it. And it was, and it was, it was a very strong, I liked it quite a bit. Avi liked it quite a bit. And I think Mike liked it quite a bit, but there were communication difficulties between Konami US and Konami Japan. And I think that people much higher up the totem pole than me were not able to pull the, the deal together. So, so unfortunately it, it didn't happen. That was the only time they asked me to come in and talk about adapting the movie. That's interesting. What sort of challenges did you run into adapting MGS into a screenplay? Well, I didn't write the screenplay. So well, in your pitch, I'm sorry. Yeah. In the, well, in the pitch, in the pitch, it wasn't too difficult because I, I, I knew the elements of the world that I wanted to adapt and I didn't have to get into writing the dialogue or rewriting the dialogue. I mean, the, one of the challenges of writing the screenplay would be how do you take a game that takes, I don't know, 40 or 60 hours and, and boil it down to two hours? <laughs> 
<laughs> and not lose the complexity of it. So that would have been quite a challenge. But when you're just pitching it, you say, oh, yeah. well, we go to this island or we go to this tanker and, you know, he runs into such and such villain and then this happens and then, oh my God, this happens and that blows his mind. And, you know, it, because I knew the world so well, it wasn't, was too difficult to put together the pitch, but the movie, writing the script itself would have been a lot of heavy lifting. Thinking about the, just the elevator pitch to that, what would you say with Metal Gear? Think it's, dang it, I just had, it's like, think Die Hard meets Cyborg Ninja in the snow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty Think, good. Okay, to everybody, I have. Well, I have two other people, and everybody are going to be listening to this podcast later. Y'all just heard it. <laughs> David Hayter approves. In fact, I'd say you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I fainted. Yeah, no, that's really good. I, I was going to say a, a legendary soldier gets called back to the battlefield to deal with near future weaponry, even though everyone involved is lying to him about the mission. Uh, Rambo basically 6 meets my, Robot Jocks. That's right. Or, or Robocop. <laughs> even better. It, it writes itself. Did well, you exactly. That's my, <laughs> that's my point, is that writing the pitch for Metal Gear if you know Metal Gear, isn't isn't too difficult. But we heard the rumors that I mean, we heard everything from John Woo to the Wachowskis were attached to the Metal Gear film. Is I'm any sure of that true? true? I, I I don't know. I I have no idea, but I'm sure that they offered it to every major directing entity. I mean, it's you know it's been kicking around since at least 2005. So I'm sure that you know I I don't think it was ever the director i don't know for sure but i think it was just very difficult to work out a deal to make the movie given all the the relevant players trying to figure out creatively how do you adapt kojima's work without pissing off kojima and and you know there's a lot of and also the movie would be it's not your standard spy movie it's not your standard action movie it's strange it's dark it's twisted and it would be extremely expensive so <laughs> you know you have to convince somebody to give you 200 million dollars to do it and the metal gear fans are like well duh obviously you should do it but it's like like comic book movies before x-men yeah, really yeah people were yeah. like we're not spending all that money on something that's unproven you know we, we don't know if that's going to work or not now they know that it does now they all the money goes to comic book movies so well see you've had to actually be in the front lines of that entire fiasco i say fiasco you've had there have been good ones there have been bad ones it's like the curse of video game movies suck you know why is that yeah. because they do well i mean nowadays maybe not necessarily but there was that running that running theme that if it's a movie based on a video game, it's going to suck. And we can all mm. trace that all the way back to Super Mario Brothers. And so, I mean, it is an uphill battle regardless, but I was just kind of curious. I could tell you quite honestly, I would kill to see John <laughs> Woo do a Metal Gear movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that would be that I mean, would be pretty great. I heard that uh, you said uh, Metal Gear Solid Three is your personal favorite out of all of them. Did you realize that it was going to be your favorite as you were reading the script, or did it take a while to grow on? You know, people people always ask me this weird question. They're like, "What was the most fun game to work on?" And I'm like, "They're all the same to work on." You know, you and they're all great. You know, you get get the script, you come in, you have these adventures, you do your voice, and and it's great. But they all feel kind of the same when you're doing it. It wasn't. A until I sat down and played Snake Eater that I was like, oh my God, this is a whole different vibe. It's a different, I mean, I knew it was a different yeah. time period, but just the look of it, it was just so different from Metal Gear mm -hmm. 2 and Metal Gear 1. I was pretty stunned by how bold it was in, you know, like all the equipment was vintage. Everything was, you know, and it was so much. And I, I of course, when I recorded, I didn't know about like the opening, the Bond, the Bond style opening and the music and <laughs> all of that. So no, it was when I played it that I realized oh, this is just something totally 
totally different, you know, and, and really gutsy. While we're on the subject of Kojima and Metal Gear, you said that the series and Kojima himself have had a big influence on your writing personally. So how what's that impact there? It certainly opened my eyes to incredibly complex storytelling with multiple, multiple characters and multiple character arcs that are all interwoven. I was blown away by the prescience of his predictions about nanomachines, about <laughs> private military companies, about genomes. Like every single game was so ahead of the actual science and actual military capabilities at the time that, I mean, that, that part really really impressed me. And I learned about directing. I learned about visuals and how the camera moves and how to create emotion in ways I never would have expected through Metal Gear. You say you were in Chronicle, you had a hand in Chronicles of Riddick's. I mean, did you also, was it a, did you have anything to do with Pitch Black? Were you involved with the Riddick storyline from the beginning or did you just jump in on the Chronicle part? No, I wrote X-Men and then before it came out, I wanted a, another screenwriting job in case the movie died. You know, I would already be working on something else. The only job that anybody would offer me was the sequel to Pitch Black. And I was like, well, I don't want a sequel to Pitch Black. I mean, Pitch Black was, is, is a great movie. It's a small, you know, sci-fi movie. I love and, that movie. Oh, no, it's great. It's awesome. But I, you know, I just done X-Men. It was like an $80 million movie and I wanted to do big things. So I said, I said, well, hey, why don't we expand this and not just say it's, <laughs> why don't we say it's not, not Pitch Black 2, it's the Chronicles of Riddick and it's create blacker. like this, this whole, well, mine was Forest Green, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, that's true. It was on the script. And so, you know, make a, a whole Riddick universe out of this. And I was trying to get them to spend more money and to make it, you know, epic. And so I wrote this script that I really liked, but, but our director fell out. I can't remember exactly what happened. Like a new director came in and then they started rewriting my script and they really got bad. And I mean, it was destroyed by, by subsequent writers who shall remain nameless. <laughs> what you said with learning about Metal Gear. Sorry to interrupt, but no, that's why I just jumped tracks completely to a whole nother thing was asking about that because I remember you mentioned it. Yeah, well, and so what happened was the original director, writer-director David Tui, who, who did Pitch Black, Yeah, he came in and he said, I'm going to do the sequel and he wrote his own script from the ground up and nothing of mine remained except for I had named one character Kira and come up with one concept that he kept and I named it Chronicles of Riddick and so he kept that as well and then he called me up when it was time to arbitrate for credit and it just wasn't my movie anymore so I, I just said David you know you've got a great script great project go I'm not going to fight you for credit off he went and they made the movie that was and, the other name I remember it was David Tui was the other guy I remember the, just somewhere around there was there seemed to be two David and a lot of the same stuff around the same different time and you know, you got Pitch Black, Metal Gear, and then X-Men and stuff. I just, I remembered it was... There's also David Kep who wrote, he wrote Jurassic Park and like all these Spielberg movies. Yeah, there were a lot of Davids around. I know y'all kept converging. It's like Pitch Black. I went to the theater. I was at the Dollar Theater. I miss it like on the big time theater. We, we had a Dollar Theater. It was the Regal. You don't know and don't care. But regardless, I used to go there I on Sundays. There was <laughs> nothing else to do. So we had Pitch Black and... Uh, American Psycho were oh, both cool. playing. I must have watched this movie a dozen times because you go to the theater and they didn't give a shit. You pay a dollar to watch the movie. They just wanted you to buy the snacks and stuff. So right. I just, just, just hang sit out there. All day. I, yeah, I just go watch one and walk across the hall and watch the other one and stuff. So I saw Pitch Black an ungodly amount of times. <laughs> I used to I used to do the same thing. I'd spend spend the afternoon at the multiplex just going from theater to theater. <laughs> stealing, Man, I miss stealing movies. Yeah. yeah. But see, I was paying for the sodas and stuff too. Now that's good. That's good. David, have you ever considered writing fiction like a novel form or something like that? Uh, yeah, have I? 
I don't know. I have definitely, but every time I do, I've written so many screenplays. Every time I do, it starts to fall into screenplay form, and I'm like, why don't I just write this as a movie? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so much, it's so much easier. It's yeah, more I was gonna profitable. Say, yeah. That's me. As I, it does, I mean, again, you don't care, but like I've the past several years i just started writing i write audio drama and stuff and so whether i'm trying to actually write a short story or a novel or it's like i'm i'm making a novel and it's just like i could do i just do an audio drama and i don't have to worry about all the boring shit i could just get <laughs> the important yeah. stuff so that's what i was laughing well exa- yeah i mean that's exactly right it's like you 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 have so much more time with your characters you get into the headspace of them their thoughts about every you can go off on tangents so i've done it before but but i'm not as disciplined in that form as I am with with screenwriting mm. so tend to go off the rails a little bit but I, I might do it someday I've thought about it so uh I'm a huge Alan Moore fan you wrote the script for Watchmen and he I doesn't do. he's not very keen on handing out praise he said that your script you know was pretty good so you had to feel good about that at least you know getting the thumbs up from the man I did yeah well I talked to him while I was while I was writing it and you know and I said look I know you don't care about Hollywood or, or you're not a big fan of Hollywood which I understand but this is your masterpiece I want you to know how much I care about about it and any input you want to have anything you want to be involved with let me know and and so he was kind enough to offer up you know he said anytime you've got questions let wow. me know i sent him the script as soon as it was done and he didn't have to do this he put out the statement i think in empire magazine saying that that david Hayter's script was the closest you know he's ever seen it adapted that said i shan't be seeing the movie is what he said but um <laughs> but it was pretty cool that he did that i mean the script itself was really pulled straight from the book i i just you know i had to edit it down for movie running time but i really did it with an eye towards not losing anything badass or or visionary from the story at all and so it really was a straight adaptation of of alan's work and i think he uh, appreciated that that was still um, like a long movie too, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, it, well, the director's cuts over three hours long, and well, we knew it would be long. It's it's a complicated story, and and a lot of the studios didn't want to make it that long, which is why we we had it set up at four different studios, and eventually they just get to a place where they'd be like, can't we just make it in two hours? And it's like you can't. It's that's not Watchmen. You know, Watchmen is not the characters per se. Watchmen is the story. It's a it's a detective story. It's a it's an epic mystery. It's it's all of them have storylines that resolve in the end. It's like clockwork. I mean, that's the way it's constructed. And I was like, either you do it that way or or don't do it at all. Fortunately, my my producers agreed, and even more fortunately, we found a hot up and coming director who wanted to make it just the way we did in Zack Snyder, and and he was in a position after 300 to make anything he wanted any <laughs> way he wanted. So. So that's how it all came together. That's how we ultimately got it made. Well, now that you're in the television renaissance, has there been anything you've wanted to, maybe a project you thought of, because you were talking about, you know, running time and stuff, Watchmen. I never read the comics, but I know they're quite an extensive volume, set of volumes. So, I mean, now that we're in the TV renaissance, has there been anything you've wanted to adapt? Yeah, I wanted to. Well, I always wanted to do, I always wanted to adapt Sandman, Neil Gaiman's brilliant, nice, epic fantasy tale, which was, you know, 12, you know, it was 12 times the size of, or 10 times, I guess, the size of Watchmen. And, you know, that's just worlds within worlds, stories within stories. And I was at one point, I was talking to Johnny Depp people. I used to party at the Viper Room with Johnny Depp and all of his executives were former bartenders. Well, not all of them, but one of the executives was a former bartender at the Viper Room who I used to drink with. And so we started talking 
talking to Johnny people about playing Dream, and then I talked to uh, Neil Gaiman about it, but uh, Neil had his own plans for it, which have now come together, and they're going to do this epic show, which I always wanted to do, and but I'm just really excited they're finally doing it properly. Oh, yeah, that's right. They are doing it. Mm-hmm. And James McAvoy and uh, just an amazing cast. So, yeah, look it up. So, David, to date, what would you say is the most difficult project you've had to work on? Oh, God. Well. What kept you up at night? All of them. You know, they were all difficult for different reasons. I mean, X-Men was massively stressful. The studio didn't want me there. They wanted me fired. Wow. Yeah. Well, they were like, you know, who's the phone answer guy who's writing our (laughs) script? You know, it wasn't I, I didn't blame them, but. I just wanted to survive. And X-Men 2 was very difficult. Maybe Watchmen. I mean, Watchmen took nine years in four different studios and four different directors and God. traveled all over the world and trying to get that made. And that was extremely difficult. And then Fox started suing us a few months into production and said they own the movie. And uh, it, yeah, it was it was nightmarish. But at the same time, I got to travel the world. I got paid a bunch of money. I, I got to you know work on Watchmen. So I mean, it works uh, out. Yeah, as as difficult as some of these things are, I mean, I would say it's far more difficult to work on a very difficult project and then it never gets made, which happens way more often than the other way around. Once the movie gets made, at least you you can say, okay, that was worth it. Maybe it wasn't, you know, it depends on the movie, but, but it's when you work for two, three, five years on something and it just dies, you know, that's, that's when it's horrible. I've heard about that. Basically just all the little things, sequence of events that have to coalesce together just to actually make a movie is pretty much just a small miracle. It is. Every time it's insane. Uh, Unless you've got, unless you've got, unless you're saying, Hey, we've got Tom Holland to do another Spider-Man. You've got that. Then the studio goes, great. Here's $300 million. Off you go. Anything short of that is miraculous that they get made. I guess also before the, the rise of the indies anyway, which I'm always going to, for that you know so that's always tell i mean you got a freaking phone go out and make your movie there's nothing right. to stop people now but yeah just the the sequence of events that have to come together especially like during the 2000s and uh the early 10s that decade yeah just the more i hear about all these movies like these you call them failed movies kind of sucks because it's like well, it wasn't that they failed but you know they did they just mm-hmm. kind of burned it burned out and died away it's like oh man that would have been cool or oh damn i would have loved to have seen that one so, yeah, well, it was like Black Widow that I was attached to direct, and I wrote that movie, and we were getting ready to go shoot it, and then and then a, a bunch of female-driven action movies came out, and they died, and, and the studio was like, oh, nobody's going to see female-driven action movies. And I was like, well, not those movies, but, you know, you write a good movie, right. and they're going to go, but, you know, that one died. So you were writing that probably around the time of Ultraviolet, Eon Flux, that time period? Yes, it was that weekend. <laughs> You don't have to name names or anything. I'm just kind of. Uh, I've, I, I've already done it. It was Ultraviolet, Eon Flux, and Blood Rain all came out within a week. Thank you. That was, and, that was, that was um, and that was that. Then we were dead. Blood Rain Dang. has ruined a lot of things. That's it. Oh, that, the game was kind of cool. I mean, it was like, dude, it had bullet time and it was a vampire and she had big titties. It was pretty cool. It just in concept. I never watched the movie. What's I don't know about the video. I'm talking about the video game. I don't know what you pervs are talking about. Yeah, but I'm just saying the GameCube. You know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. With a miracle formula like like that, I mean, where and the voices would slow down too. That is so crucial for anybody. Now, whenever you slow the voices down, you have to take care. You cannot do it in a John Woo flick because anytime you slow the voices down, it becomes a comedy. Well, it sounds. (laughs) You act. You write. You direct. You do some producing. If I put a gun to your head and I forced you to choose one, what is your true love? Well, first, I disarm you. 
Um, <laughs> and then I might say, I, you know, it, it, they're all different. I mean, they're all amazing jobs. The most pure fun job is, is voiceover because you just come in and you play and everybody's super nice and there's no pressure and it's, it's great. On-camera acting is super fun, but it can be super boring. You know, you hang out on a movie set for 16 hours before they call you in and you're sitting and sometimes you're covered in gore and goo and latex, but that's still a pretty fun way to make a living. Writing is the most fulfilling part of my career because I can create my own content. I can continue to work just based off of stuff out of my own imagination. Right. Producing is cool. Producing, I found I had a skill for it uh, when I produced my first movie in 97. And and that was cool because it was sort of like being a businessman, which I didn't think I would ever be. You know, I thought I'd just be a creative goofball. And and I found that I could talk seriously about business and raise money and organize, you know, manage people and fire people if, if need be, which was pretty fun. <laughs> and um, there was this dick on my first movie worked on the crew and he was late and so the stage manager uh or the production manager she had been calling him and he and i was in the movie so i was in my costume which was just a pair of striped boxer shorts and i was in my dressing room reading watchmen by the way and he was like screaming at her and you know he's like you know screw you bitch and you're calling me and blah 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 and i came out and she's crying and i came out and i was like what is going on out here and he goes this bitch has been calling me and calling me i said that's her job I was like, come in here. And so I called him into my office and I'm in my underpants. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you don't ever, ever speak to somebody like that on my set. Fuck out. And I fired him and I was waiting for him to get all nitsy with me, but he stood up and I stood up and he, he just turned around and walked out. And I was like, Hey, I just fired a guy in my underpants. Round of applause. Add that to the bucket list. So that was kind of fun. And then, uh, and then finally directing is, is, is everything. It's, it's every skill you ever had plus analysis of music, editing, camera movement, lenses, casting, management. Like, I mean, it just goes on. Everything you could ever, every skill you could ever imagine goes into being a good director, which I don't know if I'm a good director or not, but I, but I do love being in that position and, and getting to create a world. I mean, it's, it's the most amount of work, but it really is. It's the coolest job in the world. A director friend of mine said to me once, he said, David, rock stars want my job. That's true. So basically I, I think the answer is you'd, you'd probably have to shoot me because I can't say which one I love more than any okay. Of the rest. Okay. I wouldn't shoot you. Okay. So I appreciate just, that. <laughs> Uh, 2012 was your directorial debut, correct, with Wolves? It was, yeah. That was a horror movie. Are you a horror fan? Not really a horror movie. It's an action. It's sort of a somewhat horrific action movie. In Horror-esque? Fact, yeah, well, it was more horrifying, but the producers actually cut it to pieces at the last moment, which they promised they weren't going to do. Like, it was a lot bloodier, and they were like, well, we're going to cut it and try to make it PG-13. I was like, you can't. People are getting eaten in this movie, no matter how you... <laughs> go, go about it so in any case so uh, there's an original unrated cut that i i much prefer i think it's on a canadian dvd i think you can get it through amazon but it was always intended to be more of a comic book style werewolf movie than a flat out horror you know what i mean right it's supposed to be fun which i think it is fun and i think you know jason momoa is amazing and it. he jason went to a wolf preserve and not only studied the wolves to like figure out how to act and you can see him like sensing things and being this feral animal and and he also he adopted a wolf from the wolf preserve it's like a 90 percent white wolf 10 percent dog and she was wild like he lived up in the hills in, in la here 
And I went to a barbecue at his place and I said, where's the wolf? And he goes, oh, she'll come. She doesn't like to be around people, but she'll come around when the barbecue goes on. She'll come around when the barbecue goes on. <laughs> and, um, you know, because he's enormous. And so, so the barbecue went on and the smoke started to go and people were talking and then everybody started to get quiet. And I looked around and there she came this massive wolf on and she came and she sat like 30 feet outside the camp just watching <laughs> watching us watching the food wouldn't come near anybody except for jason and so he went up and fed her meat anyway so that was uh that was pretty that was a pretty fun aspect of the whole thing so i loved my cast and i loved you know lucas till and Merritt patterson and john piper ferguson i had these steve mchattie who was in watchmen i had this amazing cast and you know i wish more people had seen the movie but it was pretty fun i've got another one i'm taking out now for me to direct so we'll see if i get that set up do tell that's all i can tell you awesome. with the wolves being your first job well your first directing job were there any sort of hijinks that came along with that where you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off for the first few days trying to get everything done not really i mean it was pretty well planned out i mean it's always super stressful and you're and you really we were shooting typically always shooting unless you're on a really expensive movie you're always shooting more pages per day than you really have time for but it wasn't too frenetic i mean it was you know the normal stress of making a movie but it actually came together pretty well we did you know we got hit by rain and weather a few times it, it being canada and all that and then one time there's a scene where we blow up this barn and it was done with actual primer cord explosives and we did it at 3 3 in the morning the police or the fire department was there to supervise and everything and this thing went off and it sounded like a war it was just wham this massive <laughs> explosion and like all the farmhouses nearby i'm like you know what must they think and i don't know i don't know if we got any complaints from that or not but it was it was startling how intense that explosion was do you have anything else coming up i do we just produced a show i'm producing uh, called warrior nun for netflix we just i just spent the last well I spent six months last summer in Spain and living in Madrid and producing this show, which was incredible. The second season, I'm really proud of the first season. I think it's great, but the second season is three times as big. It's insane what we what we've done. So I'm hoping that'll that'll be a big hit with people. I just announced that I'm going to be adapting American McGee's Alice Games. Uh, that, Alice, thank you, Alice in the Madness. Nice. Um, so I'm developing that show right now. In fact, I just got a email from american sending me a ton of artwork to go through which is pretty cool so that's coming yeah there's more to come but those are but those are um those are the two projects that people know about so keep an Would eye out. Be... thank you for having me on your show i, thank I you. really appreciate it all right mm -hmm. justin and jason so nice to meet you thank you for having me and my best to all of your listeners out there welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the night demon heavy metal podcast is for you step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon we're talking band history song analysis studio anecdotes stories from the road it's everything a diehard night demon fan could want and more this is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the night demon story need more the sacred night demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.